Hello, and welcome to episode 6 of Sora Podcast. You'll be hearing Maureen and Nainthar in conversation with Greg Halby, the moderator of the First Congregational United Church of Christ in Columbus, Ohio, and founder of Rusalka, a choir in the Russian folk tradition. Greg's experience of Russian and orchestra have been inextricably linked, with his high school Russian teacher being married to the local orchestra director. So it's no surprise that eventually, following what he describes as a few failures and happy accidents, he ended up writing a dissertation on Rimsky-Korsakov's opera Snow Maiden, as one does. During his years at Ohio State University, he and his advisor founded Rusalka, and that's where he and Maureen met. Now, unfortunately, I was gallivanting around Central Asia and didn't get to join this conversation, but it's a real feast for the ears, covering what music can help us know, how relationships are forced in musicking, the place of trust, care, and community, and so much more. You'll also get to hear some Russian folk singing. So listeners, you are in for a real treat. Hold on to your butts. Here we go. Okay, so welcome to Sora. Thank you, Maureen. Good to be here. Uh, For our listeners, this is Greg Halby. Uh, He's a friend of mine from The Ohio State University, and he did his dissertation on Rimsky-Korsakov's The Snow Maiden. And... uh, I guess we'll start with our our uh, traditional question, which is, uh, what color are you wearing, and why did you choose that color? Today's color <laughs> is pink. I'm wearing pink because, well, it goes back to um, kind of a gender identity thing with me. Um, I was raised at a time when blue and pink were very you know, much the province of male and female, and at some point in my teenage years, I just said, well, wait a minute, you know, why is that? Um, and, and it wasn't until my adult years I realized that people were complimenting me every time I wore pink. I thought, well, then I guess it's my color, so I'll own it. And that's pretty much what's, <laughs> it's been an evolution of identity for me, I guess. So you're just owning, so cool. owning your identity. Yes. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I'm wearing pink. I've got my, my little pink bracelet on, too, just mm-hmm. for you. Nye, are you also in pink? I am. I'm wearing my one pink dress, which sounds like I don't like pink, but I love pink. And a lot of what I realized in trying to find something pink to wear is that I own a lot of pink things, but not a lot of pink clothes. Yes, I was also thinking that, that I had a lot of pink accessories, but not a lot of pink clothes. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I have a pink house. So you do? Yes. What? Yeah. Oh my gosh. And, we need and, a picture you know, of that. It's, it's so weird when you grow up male in the in in nineteen fifties and sixties America, and even some places today, it's like, oh, is it okay? It's a pink house. Are you okay with that? Like, Why shouldn't I be okay with a pink house? <laughs> so. And do, do you love pink as well? I mean, do you, is that one of your favorite colors? I do. I've always liked pink. Um, and I've it, it's always been this weird, why am I being challenged because I like pink? <laughs> well, Silverio likes pink too. For the listeners, that's my three-year-old. Um, Aww. I think pink is a very exciting color. It is an exciting color. Like we shouldn't and, deprive children from liking it. No, they can. Yeah, he can like whatever color he wants. It changes every week. So <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, lately, it's been pink. 
So we are in an actual physical space, which doesn't happen often. I mean, it's not that we're floating to the air, but we are, <laughs> there's more than one of us present in the same space. Um, and this space is very special to you, Greg. So um, could you tell us where we are and a little bit about the space and the work that you do here? Yes, we are in First Congregational United Church of Christ here in Columbus, um, where I have been a member since I moved to town in 1984. And I came to Columbus uh, from Lawrence, Kansas, to start my uh, PhD work. And as I prepared to leave Lawrence, at my home church there, uh, the choir director, who happened to also be the um, the head of the uh, School of the Fine Arts in at uh, at KU, um, took a picture postcard off the uh, choir bulletin board showed it to me said, make this the first church you go to. And it was a picture of our Von Beckerat organ, pipe organ here in our sanctuary. And he got it from having been a guest artist in our concert series here in Columbus years before. So I did as he said, and I made this the first church I attended and I've been attending ever since. And um, I am now uh, the moderator which is the chair of the church council, which is the governing body of the church. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's been a journey uh, here in Columbus, and we'll, we'll get into that. But here at church, um, I've been a member of the choir off and on. Um, I ducked out of choir for a little while back in the 90s and early 2000s when another choir... <laughs> Uh, absorbed all my attention. Um, oh my gosh. But I've been a deacon know. here. I've been in various di- different capacities of church leadership and, uh, and really have uh, in this, you know, retirement phase of my life, um, really felt that I've blossomed into a role moderator that I really was not feeling comfortable with or prepared for. Um, for most of my time here. And it was only in the last couple of years I said, wait a minute, I think I can do this. And I seem to be doing okay. Can, can you like explain what, because like Nayantara and I both come from very different religious backgrounds. So can you explain like sort of what the work of a moderator is? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, in UCC, United Church of Christ is uh denomination where none of the decisions are made above the church level. So the church makes all of its decisions, who its minister is going to be, um, who the staff are going to be, how it governs its affairs, its budget, everything. So church council is the body that kind of brings together all the decision-making in one place and, you know, has, representatives from various commissions, personnel, budget and finance, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm, you know, uh, in charge, so to speak, of a, a church that has a million dollar budget, a multi-million dollar endowment, 
uh, multiple staff, and it's a level of oh, responsibility wow. uh, that I've just never even come close to before. Um, and it's not like I'm doing it all by myself. It's and that's the point. It's a team that works mm. together. But How many people are on the church council? We have what twelve to fourteen voting members, and another. You know, we we have members, and then we have members elect who don't get to vote, but are encouraged to attend meetings and get a feel for how things are done. Um, so yeah, about 20 some people in total. Wow. So each church governs itself. Mm -hmm. And is there a, like a, I don't know, a network between these churches? Yes. Is there any yes. sort of larger presiding body? I'm just very yes. curious. Right. Yeah. So we have, uh, we, you know, so, you know, the next level above the local church is the area association. So we have a central Ohio, uh, central and Southeast Ohio association, and they're here to support us in times like, Hey, we're in right now where our senior minister has said he's going to retire a year from now. And now we have to start thinking about who's going to replace him. Well, mm. they help us with that. They don't tell us who to pick, but they help us find candidates. Mm. Uh, so there is that kind of network. And then above them, there is the conference level, which pretty much takes care of all of Ohio, in addition to West Virginia and a little bit of Kentucky. And then you have the national level, and their headquarters happen to be in Cleveland. Um, oh. so, so, yeah, it's uh, um, it, we do have that, that networking and they are here to support us. Um, and in times of, you know, there are times where they will help come in and um, and work with us if there was any particular reason to say if someone accused a minister of misconduct. Well, then that wouldn't be our job anymore. That goes to the association mm. of the conference and they come in and work with us to resolve that. Wow. Wow. Like, that's really cool. Like years of coming for you to learn this whole structure. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I've grown up in this denomination, so I've always had kind of a feel for how this whole thing works. Mm -hmm. um, but this is by far the largest church I've ever, you know, attended or been a member of. And like I say, I've been a member for going on 40 years. And you would think I would just understand from being around that long how things work in this church. And I did, too, when I started last February. But it has been only the last few months where I've realized, oh, every single decision that we make, you know, personnel has to talk to budget and finance, has to talk to so-and-so when in just about every situation. House and grounds has to be in touch with budget and trustees and so on. Mm. So it is, yeah, it, it's a level of networking and a level of decision-making and the complexity of it. it just, it's not immediately apparent or intuitive. Mm. And I'm sure there's also like a level of trust that you have to build, right? Oh, I mean, every... yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, yeah, it feels like that's very much at the core of yeah. the when you're system talking like about it. What the fascinating thing for me, and what I really find a great deal of joy in in this work, is that 
yeah, anytime you're talking millions of dollars worth of property, mm-hmm. worth of um, staff's uh, pay, and et cetera, et cetera, um, you're going to have conflict and you're going to have some, sometimes some mm-hmm. very strong differences of opinion. But, and, and we certainly live in a world right now where people are starting to despair that people on opposite sides of anything can get anything done together. Um, and what I'm finding is that for myself, I'm finding a model of decorum and respect and even love for each other um, in these church processes um, mm. that really, I think, go back to the, what you're saying, is a, a level of trust uh, that... I think we used to have in some capacity and somewhere and, but it's, it's, um, and for us, it's as a former senior minister reminded me, you know, not that long ago, I said, you know, the thing to bear in mind is it's not about us. We are not, I'm not the one in, in charge here. My senior minister is not the one in charge here for our faith tradition. It's Jesus that's in charge. And as long as we own that, and understand that we have to listen to each other to find that truth we're looking for. That's where the trust comes in. That's where the respect comes in. It, you know, I don't have all the answers. Maybe this person, as much as I disagree with them, maybe there's something there I can learn from. And when you when you have big, this is something Nayantar and I talk about a lot. When you have big disagreements, like within your board, mm-hmm. how do you? How do those conversations happen? I guess what I was trying to get at is something Nayantar and I talk about is holding when we are running, when I, when I was chair of a board or an organization that she works with, we try to hold space for dissent because yes. what we don't want is for the other people to become so disenfranchised that they leave. We want the, we need them with us. Oh yeah. We also, we don't want to silence their voice and say, well, we're the majority. We voted Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're facing that. I mean, cause so yes, some people have said, well, I don't like what's going on here. I'm out of here. Some of them are pausing, you know? So yeah, in any organization like that, you're going to face that possibility and you need to hold space for dissent, mm-hmm. even when it's, you know, minority and we, we have a clear majority that's saying this, let's just move on. Well, no, um, in fact, that we went through a whole constitutional amendment process uh, this past year, and we had one member wow. who said, wait a minute. And, and we had the votes to just basically say, well, thank you for sharing. We're going to go ahead anyway. But we didn't. You know, right. we held space, we listened to him, and we learned that, oh, wait a minute, these things that you're objecting to, you know, we... If, if we're in agreement on that this isn't necessary, then fine, because, you know, mm. it happened that we're, there were two sides of a, an issue that these amendments were trying to address. Well, he was one side of that issue, and they were, you know, folks on the other side were going, well, let's make sure we get it in the Constitution that we can all agree. And he's saying, yeah, don't need to worry about that. So, oh. <laughs> oh, okay, fine, then we just won't do it. <laughs> So, so yeah, holding space for dissent is absolutely, 
you know, it, it there does come a time when you have to move on in yeah in, in a spirit of mutual understanding, maybe not agreement. Okay, we hear each other. Let's move on. Um, right. And that's not that's not an easy thing to do, but yeah, there's a lot of ego you have to put aside to be like, you know what? I don't fully agree with how you're moving on, but I'm part of this unit. I'm part of this trust. You know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes a lot, and I think it it probably is helpful to be doing that within like a faith-based community or a faith community right um Mm -hmm. there's probably a lot of support and a lot of teaching and understanding of how to do that within that compared to some other ones right like if you're doing this within um private enterprise there's Mm -hmm. not a there's not like a theoretical (laughs) framework of trust based work behind you (laughs) no no there is not (laughs) (laughs) that is a very nice way of putting it (laughs) i just want to move move along a little bit um and to talk about another community that you were also a member of so you and i shared a mentor and through our relationship with that mentor, we participated in a very interesting world with people who are from Russia, who speak Russian and or who love Russian music. Um, so let's just talk about it a little bit and maybe we can compare it that community. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Can I... Yeah. Can I contextualize that a little bit? Sure. Just because as a person who does not share this mentor and has never met this mentor, I've heard tale of this mentor for a decade or more now. And um, this person almost feels like a character in a book, mm. like this eccentric, wise, old person <laughs> who just... I don't know. I guess has opened Maureen up to this world of fantasy. And yeah. So when you are talking about a mentor, it's not so much just like an academic, but it is almost a mythical creature. Mm. And I feel like the audience needs to know that. They'll get a sense of it as we're talking. (laughs) (laughs) Can we mention her name? We can. I don't think she'll mind. Her name is Dr. Mazzo. Margarita Mazzo. She was my advisor at Ohio State. The, the whole the circuit, talk about a mythical journey. Okay, so I'm I'm not always as um, I'm not known for my deliberative planning and and <laughs> linear thinking, and probably just the opposite. <laughs> so as I was studying at KU. Uh, finishing my getting close to the end of my master's program there and realizing that I needed to find another institution to pursue my studies because I was running out of Russian music courses to take literally at, at KU. I came across Professor Laurel Fay at a at American Musicological Society conference that was held in University of Michigan. And she presented a paper on Shostakovich, which she was 
I don't know if she just released the book or was preparing to. Great book on Shostakovich's life and works. And she was a press professor at Ohio State. And I thought, got to talk to her a little bit. It's like, oh, this is great. Year and a half later, I'm thinking, oh, I'll go to Ohio State and study with Professor Faye. I get to Ohio State, realize that the previous winter or spring, she had resigned. She had decided, and nothing wrong with Ohio State, it, she just decided she wanted to be, try her hand at being an independent musicologist. She moved to New York City, got a place on Long Island, I think. And, uh, and she was, she was an independent scholar. She wrote for you know, all the little publications in New York, kept writing books, et cetera. Well, what do I do now? Well, here's this Russian professor, uh, literally from who had headed the ethnography division at, um, Leningrad state, uh, university, uh, in what's now St. Petersburg and, and so I have a conversation with her. So, oh, nice to meet you. I'm here to study, I guess, with you. <laughs> and quickly, when I learned about her background in Russian folk music, I said, well, yeah, okay, you had a folk choir. It would be really neat if we started one year. Oh, great. And you will direct it, Gregory. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I guess I will. But what I quickly learned was that KU's Russian choir, in fact, just about any choir that calls itself a Russian choir, at least at the time, this was back in the 80s, really had no idea about what village Russian folk music really sounded like and how it was, how it was to be learned, how it was to be performed. But here I was sitting in a room with a woman who absolutely knew that world and could help me you know, help introduce me to it. So it really started me on a journey. I mean, yes. So we started her class in music in the Russian folk tradition brought together. You can talk about Russian speakers and, and musicians. We had a class of, I think, 12. Six of us were uh, Russian languages and literatures majors, graduate students. Six of us were from the School of Music. So I was the only one in the room who both spoke Russian and knew a lot about Russian culture and could sing and knew the music side of things. So by the, so her project, the, the, instead of a final paper, she had us pair up. So we, you know, the, the musicians and the, so you had one, one musician, one Russian scholar pairing up and teaching the class two Russian folk songs. Um, and, and our resources were transcriptions in the, uh, in the music library. And then we, so the final project then was a concert and we couldn't do it during finals week because we weren't ready. <laughs> so, so bless their hearts, all of these students came back for that concert after, you know, in, in winter term, after, after this fall term class and put on a performance in Hughes 101, the little classroom that is no longer there. Um, and that was the first performance of what became the OSU Russian choir and then the Slavic 
ensemble and then Rusalka. So, so uh, maybe we should try and describe Russian music for our listener. So yeah, Russian folk singing and uh, village tradition, as we were taught, um, probably the biggest distinction is that there is no single melody in a Russian folk song. Every person in the group, whether it's a group of two, three, four, or 20, has a melody line that is equally, you know, uh, as significant and, um, and germane to the, to the total sound as any other. And they're all, it's some of them, are, there's, some, there's some basic structure to it. There might in some songs be two or three different paths that you can take melodically, each of them with their own slight variations along the way. Um, and the musical term for it is heterophony. You have, so you have homophony, which would be everyone singing the same tune, same notes in unison. You have um, monophony, you know, so, you know, so monophonic would be one tune. Homophonic would be everyone singing in parts. You know, so if you're like, you think of a, um, a traditional, you know, Christian hymn in four-part harmony is be um, homophonic. Um, mm-hmm. And polyphonic would be more complicated and where people are singing different rhythms and it, it, the texture gets to be a little more complicated. Heterophony is, is unique and it's, it's something you don't see in, in Western music tradition very often, um, but it is a term that applies to certain folk traditions in other parts of the world, certainly in Russia. So. And, and the way Dr. Mazza explained it to me when I was her student who knew nothing about music, Dr. Mazza always joked, oh, poor Maureen. The first thing she learned about music was Russian village tradition. She's been ruined for life. <laughs> <laughs> the way she explained it to me was that the basically there are points like where points of movement and everyone has to get back to the same place so there are certain notes that you must return to everyone at the same time but between those notes Mm -hmm. you can kind of do whatever you want and Mm -hmm. so it's an improvisational it's a system of improvisation it's very much an oral tradition and if you grow up in that tradition if you grow up in a village where those songs are sung you basically just kind of absorb it. It's like part of your DNA, the air you breathe. And yes, there's some teaching that happens. I say, well, that that was not quite right. You know, try this kind of kind of um, coaching that might happen. But for the most part, you're basically just you know just because you've heard it all your life what fits and what doesn't. Right. And, and in our choir, we had, well, Greg knows, was like, he moved through a larger set of people than I did, but like from the group of people that I knew, we had some people who were just like really amazing singers who spoke Russian. 
And then we had people who didn't speak Russian at all, but who liked folk stuff. So they did contra dancing, they did uh, shape note singing, they did other mm. kinds of folk music. And one of those people was Sylvia, Sylvia Thomas. And Sylvia just, she had this talent for memorizing gibberish and singing it back perfectly. And it's like, it was like yeah. Sylvia just walked magically out of a Russian village. She could do it. She was amazing. And, <laughs> and well, now I think, which one is Dabno Dabno? Track number six? Eight. Eight. Let's play track number eight so you can hear Sylvia. Okay. Well, right. th this so. is actually, this is, I think Leslie sings the lead. Leslie sings the lead, but you can hear her voice. Sylvia's right. voice yeah. in there. Yeah, yeah Leslie's Sylvia. the lead. Dabno Dabno to me as we were listening that that that's sylvia's voice that highest voice the one that's yeah, she, the highest and, she and Olga were yeah, kind of on the high, higher the two main lines sylvia's role in this whole thing has to be pointed out too if you think about what sustains a volunteer organization so that first concert of this class we did not get that publicized very well. And Sylvia was, at the time, she, she was a librarian at Grandview Heights Library. And so I don't know how it got to her, but in some community calendar somewhere, she saw that there was going to be this concert of Russian folk music. And as you say, she and Leslie were very good friends, um, and they shared a lot of interests in, in different groups around town, um, different folk related um you know groups she shows up to this concert and she's boom and comes in and she says are you going to continue singing this music she was really <laughs> part a lot of the energy that told us okay there's something here that people like and that we can continue um and it took us you know it took us a while but but basically sylvia's been there since day one literally so if you oh, think wow. about 
Dr. Mazo, absolutely. Me, yes, I did end up directing. But Sylvia was, she brought in, you know, you know, at least a half dozen other very good, very uh, sustaining members of the group. Yeah. And I, I was uh, Sylvia's apprentice at my job. I, I didn't, I can't, I have no musical memory. I can't uh, remember a melody. So I just followed Sylvia. <laughs> that was what I did. That puts you in very yeah. good company in just about any <laughs> choir I can think of. <laughs> but um, so when we talk about this music and we talk about singing together, um, I feel that it, what we really created a community. Mm-hmm. And the community was a community of care, mm-hmm. like Sylvia, I, I mean, I was an undergraduate who didn't have a car and like no money. And Sylvia was driving me home on the exact opposite side of town that mm-hmm. she lived on for mm-hmm. a year. Um, you know, people, I was writing to these guys when I went off to Peace Corps, you know, we were, we were, yeah. when one of the guys in our choir is, was a mathematician and he was another one of Sylvia's friends, another one of Sylvia's friends, but they had like a little intervention to get him to like clear his very tiny apartment of books at some point. <laughs> they were just like, this is ridiculous. We are, you need help. And so like people, and, and we would have parties at Sylvia's house yes. and Sylvia, yeah. Sylvia had this, uh, what's it called? Croquet party every year, you know, like an Alice, you know, yeah. hit the little I balls. I almost forgot about yeah. that. Yeah. And she, oh, croquet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it was this crazy croquet party. And, uh, it, and we did a lot of performances here at this church, I suppose, because of Greg, because it was mm-hmm. Greg's church. Mm-hmm. I never knew why we did them here. Mm-hmm. I just thought, well, first congregationalists <laughs> love Russian music. Um, <laughs> well, we had a uh, we had the contra dance group that would be yes. downstairs. Yeah, um, and they were all contra dancers too. Right. So there was this this other community, like there was the the community of Rosalka, and then there was the like they kind of linked into both the Russian speaking people who studied Russian and people who studied Russian music community, and then also. Um, the folk life community, like Columbus, American, local folk life. But then Greg was telling me these fantastic tales of his adventures with <laughs> and how they went to conferences together. So could you, can you just fill Nayantara in? Cause this was amazing. And, and they, they heard Taruskin speak. So. Well, yeah. So, well, you and I, our, our friendship really was sealed on a, and it was one particular conference hosted by Goldsmith uh, College in London. Uh, oh my gosh, that's where I did my master's. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and um, it, this was when? It was, gosh, my memory fails, but it was at least in the 90s or early 2000s, I think. It was a conference devoted to Rimsky-Korsakov. And it was a citywide thing. It involved the London Philharmonic or Symphony, I forget which. 
And so there was a concert downtown and there was a lot of stuff going on. And Benedict Sarnaker, and I don't even know what his um, discipline was now. He was a professor at Goldsmiths and he put and I up for the entire time we were there. And for that ended up being a very extended visit because he had visa problems getting back. He, he, he was on a student visa uh, as a Russian citizen and you know he had to go to the Russian embassy in London in order to get a visa to go back to the United States. Oh my God. And this was like right at the end of, middle of December, it's Christmas time coming up. It's Which so is like, like the forever holiday so, in Russia. So <laughs> you got to be lifelong friends with Benedict and his family um, <laughs> as a result of that. But but in the, while we were there at, his, at Benedict's house, Benedict had left the house to us one night that we were there. Uh, he was he had plans. He was going to go out to dinner with you know, friends or whatever. So we had the house. It took the, took charge of the evening and said, "Okay, we're gonna have uh, permini." That's the word I was looking for. It just popped into my head. Finally, I've been racking my brain for what was that dish? And it, this is uh, Siberian um, um, pastry, not a, a meatball. No, 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 no. I'm trying to think of the word now. Dumpling. Dumpling. Thank you very much. Um, so yeah, so you, and you take a you cookie cutter or whatever you can, a, a, a glass looks per perfectly well. So he was rolling out the dough and cutting the circles and we were filling it with this, his mom's recipe and boiling them. And we had a meal and we, we, oh, this was, this is a project. And it is when you make pyramid, it's a, it's a good project <laughs> and it's, it's really fascinating. So we had the vodka to go along with it, but for after dinner, we we moved on to Benedict's uh, um, liquor cabinet, and we poured <laughs> through that, and we found um, um, oh, and I'm gonna forget the name of the smoky uh, single malt scotch from the Isle of Skye, um, Talisker. Mm. Not cheap. <laughs> and the better part of a yeah, it was peat, just the peat smoke taste just it, it overwhelms everything else. It's just it's like <laughs> drinking, you know, peat smoke. It's beautiful. Um, better part of a bottle in that cabinet. Well, it was gone, <laughs> and Benedict was so gracious about it. It was fine. But we had the most delightful conversation, you know, through that evening. But but yeah, that <coughs> and I and it. it Later on, he ended up being uh, best man at my wedding. I mean, that was just how strong that relationship became from that one night. And he's a he's a philosopher. Oh yeah. And he he works at Ohio University, and um, I think he was studying Orpheus, the myth of Orpheus, mm -hmm. when he was. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because his focus was on philosophy of the arts, and 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 and, uh, and he's a, and you know him, he's an amazing singer, played guitar beautifully, um, and and spoke English, speaks English. Yeah, like a native speaker, just yeah. with a slight accent. Yeah, yeah. because he has that. Oh it, wow! In, 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 he was a professional translator in Moscow. Oh, I, didn't know. I mean, yeah, he's. 
Peter Jennings and all these the American these oh, well known yeah yeah so <laughs> and he wrote a composition as part of his dissertation because remember we, mm -hmm. we had to we were trying to sing it for him but we it was yeah. hard for us and right. he wasn't satisfied with the results right but the, I mean these were the kind of projects we sort of got into collectively. Mm. And they were always very interesting and exciting, and we got to know each other as people, too. Exactly. And why were you guys in, in London? He was presenting a paper. I was both, we were both presenting papers at this conference okay. at Goldsmiths. Um, his, I, mine was just a chapter from my dissertation on, on Snow Maiden, but uh, his was, it was something about... Rimsky Korsakov, and I shame on me. I don't remember what you were, were talking about at the time, but it was something about um, Rimsky Korsakov's um, philosophical context, something around that. Oh, that sounds like something he would write. Mm -hmm. um, should we explain who Rimsky Korsakov is? Since we're just like throwing well, names out there. I think the context yeah. that some people may need is that we know Rimsky Korsakov for Flight of the Bumblebee and Russian Easter Overture, and you know, oh. folks who feel like they know Rimsky-Korsakov well might think, well, he was a great orchestrator, and he did. He wrote a book on, on orchestration that became the textbook uh, at Russian conservatories and actually was an adjunct textbook for it got translated into English and many other languages. So it became one of the standard books on orchestration. But what we don't know outside of Russia is that he wrote 15 operas and that those operas really were the heart and soul of his uh, creative output. Uh, that's what he hung his hat on as, a, as, a, as an artist, as a composer. Um, and they, they just do not get played that much outside of, outside of Russia. Now, as a non-musical person in every sense of the word, not a through academics, not in life, not, you know, in any way. Um, 15 operas sounds like a lot. Like, it sounds like an opera takes at least a year to write one opera. So 15 sounds like a lot of operas. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yeah. He had a long life okay. and it was, and he started young. So, yeah, you're talking... Yeah you know, 40, 50 years of creative output to put out 15 operas. Yeah. Whoa. So, um, just because I, I, for some reason, randomly remembered this other story you told me um, about the one time in your life that you really felt like your dissertation was working for you in the Moscow archives. Oh, well, see, okay, so that was post-dissertation. It was done. I had my PhD, but I was working as an academic advisor at Ohio State Newark. I'm thinking, this is not what you get a PhD in music history to do. So what was all that for? And what, one thing I knew already was that I learned how to write very well. And I began to take pride in that, and I began to take joy in that. And I was beginning to find opportunities in my work life and my personal life and so on to, um, to communicate in writing in, in, 
in effective ways and in ways that touched people, uh, ways that helped people. So I was fine. Okay, at least I can do that. But then another conference shows up and it's a conference hosted by the Rimsky-Korsakov Apartment Museum in Petersburg. It was the last apartment that Rimsky and his family owned and it became a museum. And the staff at that museum at some point, and this was like 2010, uh, was decided, let's do a global conference on Rimsky-Korsakov. There was no particular anniversary in his life that it was commemorating, but they thought, let's just do it. Let's put this museum on the map culturally in St. Petersburg and hopefully develop some connections for grants and that kind of thing, showing that we can attract attention from around the world. So they gathered, and this is where Taruskin, you know, steps in. Um, they got Richard Taruskin as the keynote. And uh, anyone who read the New York Times uh, for the last 40, 50 years knows him for article after article, after review after review. He was, you know, just um, one of the voices of uh, the music community to the wider world in, in, um, in New York. Um, taught at Columbia, went on uh, to, was it UCLA or um, one of the schools out in California? Again, my memory's terrible. Anyway, but he, but in his, in, in musicology circles, he's known as the heart and soul of American, uh, or really any, you know, scholarship about Russian music outside of Russia. Uh, and at the time, certainly he was at the height of his uh, career and uh, he was a senior statesman for the for the community at that point, and so for them to get him as a keynote was a, a real coup. And I just want to I just want to add this little detail: like Richard Taruskin has this, he, I mean, we're describing as him as this gargantuan figure, which he was, mm -hmm. but he was such such a an amazing person to speak to. Like he had this ability to explain music to narrate music the story of whatever musical work he wanted to talk about in this way that was like a little fairy tale that a child could understand and and he, <laughs> and he had this voice that just made you want to listen to him and he would come mm -hmm. to osu to give lectures off and on because he and dr mazza were colleagues and friends and they always joked like two jews three opinions because they, they never agreed and <laughs> like if he I've, I just have this memory of him as this, just a warm, gentle, kind human being with who was also had this amazing intelligence and knowledge. And Maureen is describing the man that Richard Shurskin actually was. The persona in the musicology circles was almost the exact opposite. Mm. He loved an argument. Really? And he did not shy away from one. And he, if, he, if he found your... Um, you know, opinion spurious or, you know, ill, 
uh, lacking evidence, he t- would tell you in the bluntest possible way <laughs> in writing in public. Uh, so his reviews were scathing sometimes. If he just, yeah, but, but he was always in service of a point he was trying to make. So he would, he would. Um, mm. So and it was one wasn't just in Russian music circles. It was in historical. Um, Historically informed performance. He had very strong opinions there. He played the viola da gamba extremely well. So he had very strong um, background in that as well. So, but yeah, he, he, there was a one famous American Musical Ecology Society uh, conference. I think it was in Cleveland where one of the sessions was basically a panel discussion about his argument with a fellow musicologist and they were both on on the dais with with a few others and i mean that they just had at each other and it was there was no shouting or anything like that it's very respectful we talk about <laughs> space for dissent i mean there was a lot of space for dissent in that room <laughs> but there was some very blunt language along <laughs> with it um so so yeah so richard was there as a keynote and we got to know each other over the weekend there was about 20 some of us from around the world uh that spoke at this conference and there was a uh guy about my age stephen muir from um england who had written who his focus was on rimsky's later operas and mine is on the early ones and at dinner one time we're chatting richard is talking about how there's no monograph of Rimsky's life and works written in a language other than Russian. And, and, and Stephen and I are both thinking, well, that's, that's, that shouldn't be, it should be. And he looks at the two of us and said, well, no one better than you two to do something about that. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> and of course, this, this was 13 years ago, and neither one of us, I mean, you know, hopefully, knock on wood, you know, but it's something I continue to think about to this day, and I, I, I'm Facebook friends with Stephen, and I think, he, and he's getting close to retirement now. Well, so retirement I, well, Exactly. Exactly. Why not? So, anyway, talk about community, talk about inspiration and mentoring and so on. That was a moment of mentorship, you know, that from Richard. And both Dr. Mazzo and Taruskin both have this style in which they're very direct. And <laughs> sometimes they just task you with things. Like you will do this and then you don't even know why, but you feel compelled to do it. And then you do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and there's but there is also a level of mentorship that you don't find, you find extremely rarely. I mean, Margarita had me at her house. I mean, I, my journey through the dissertation was arduous to say the least. And there was a moment where I was seriously in doubt whether I would ever really finish. And we would have heart to heart discussions in her office about why that was and what was keeping me from just, I was so close. And she said, okay, you're going to bring your computer. I have a guest bedroom in my house. You're going to plant yourself in my house and we're going to do two weeks. 
and and it's we're going to set aside everything else. You have no other obligations. You know, we're going to focus on that. And it was it was a turning point. We would I would write for a few hours. She would you say come and get me when you want to want to talk, and we would go out for a walk around our neighborhood. And how many advisors even think about that level of mentorship? And it just was not, not even a question for her. It's just what you do when your student is struggling. That's amazing. Yeah. So. And like last night, I, I just called her because Greg and I came up with this question when we were putting the, the podcast stuff together yesterday. And I said, you know, Dr. Mazza would know the answer to that. And I called her and I said, uh, Dr. Mazza, we have this question about Russian music. And, you know, she was, she was so delighted to receive that question. She, and, and she gave me, I took notes on her answer. I have them right in front of me. Like it, and it, and it really reminded me of that, the depth of her knowledge and she spoke to me in Russian for the first half of the conversation before she realized that's what she was doing. <laughs> I understood her. I was just answering her in English because if I speak to her in Russian, she'll tell me that I don't speak Russian. Correct me, and then the whole conversation will get derailed. <laughs> so she, my, I guess my point is, she still does it. She still mentors us, you know, to the best of her ability. Right. That's like a lifelong relationship that you have now. Yes, it is a lifelong relationship. And she wants to know about her students and, mm-hmm. you know, she mm. wants to be remain a part, a part of our lives. She doesn't just want to know about us as professionals. She wants to know about us as people, humans. Because I think, I think personally, because of, that's all you had in Russia under Soviet power was true mm. human relationships. Mm-hmm. Right. I think. Well, and you know, that just to just to be able to continue her research and her um, um, her work outside of Russia was it, its own journey. I mean, those first few years between 1984 um, when, when she and I started work together and five years, six years later, the collapse of the Soviet Union was an extremely important moment for her because finally she, it took time. I don't know. I think it was the mid nineties before she had, and I'm not sure she ever had complete access, but she was not being given access until then to her own, um, Field notes and research. It was in, that was the property of the conservatory and she was, she was an emigrate. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So that was huge. And so, yeah, so, so, so her, her ability after that point, her, her, you know, that was when Stravinsky, her work on that and, and, and the lament and everything else. That started then. She was not able to really get at that work wow. until until after that. Wow. Oh my gosh. I didn't know that. So here's a heavier question. Okay. 
one of the things we talk about in this podcast a lot is knowledge production. So how does, in your experience, music, and especially the performance of music, contribute to knowledge production? Like, what can you know through music or the performance of music that you can't know in other ways? Hmm. Well, I'll get at that. If you'll pardon a little bit of a tangent here. Um, We're all about tangents. I, I th- because I think we have traditionally, as at least in Western cultures, we've, we've got a very strong dichotomy between something like music and something like uh, scholarship and knowledge. And mm-hmm. so entering college as an undergrad and deciding on a major, um, I was still undecided and I was kind of wrestling really between music and Russian were becoming my two top possibilities. And I started a sequence in uh, Western music history uh, with Professor Stephen Kelly uh, at uh, Carleton College where I did my BA. And that series of three courses just absolutely uh, changed my life and changed my understanding of music because it really became clear to me as we were studying. He was putting it in the context. Um, and this was not in any textbook that he was using, although we had a, the, the standard textbook. Steve was bringing into that uh, class the awareness that nothing happens in a vacuum. So if you're studying classical music, then the politics of the time, the philosophy of the time, the history of the time, all pertains. And the music pertains to it. So how music is structured is very much a piece in, in, say, by Mozart, is very much a piece of the Enlightenment and rationalism and and so so and you and you learn about the enlightenment you learn about rationalism and 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 that kind of thing in a deeper um and more intuitive way when you're performing a mozart concerto or, or symphony that's one way of getting at it i guess um for me personally, I, my interest in music was always in service of learning. I mean, I guess that's, if there's anything that ties my life journey together, it's like I've, I've always been a curious person, interested in learning. And I wasn't, and, and in service of something that will help others learn as well. So I wasn't content simply to get good at an instrument. I wanted it to be something that had some more significance, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. And, and so finding that, finding that connection uh, became definitely a way of seeing, and getting back to Rusalka too. I mean, that group 
was mostly people who had no, as you said, not, not a whole lot of exposure to Russia, to folk music in general. And we were, it was a community that developed relationships, friendships and so on. But I think also we learned by practice something about people that we otherwise had no acquaintance with. Yeah, we learned about each other as we were. Mm -hmm. Like I have a, it sounds so weird, but I have a very strong feeling of everyone in Rusalka's physical presence. Mm -hmm. Like I know what it's like to stand next to you and hear your voice. I know what it's like to stand next to Eric and hear his voice. And like, not just the voice, but the the movement. Because when you sing, your body moves, like the movement of their body. That It's this very weirdly intimate knowledge of one another. And our practice of singing together in that style, in the style of these Russian and Ukrainian villages, you know, halfway around the world, even though we've not, we as a group never had any close connection or a joint performance or anything like that with those groups. And one thing Margarita was always, Margarita was always very good at reminding us is that we are, our experience was kind of artificial in a way. We're not, we're not raised in that tradition. We're doing our best to imitate it. We're, we're doing our best to manufacture something that closely resembles it. And our recordings, we'll, we'll add that, don't sound like the Russian village recordings. No, they don't. They sound very different because oh, we are our own people and mm -hmm. we come from different musical traditions and we make different musical choices as a collective than the Russian villagers did. And yet oh. having that experience of singing together. And as you say, that, 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 that physical experience of being closely um, connected to each other through singing is something that connects us to, in a very real sense, to the experience of the villages, you know, halfway around the world. Because, and I, I experienced that with, at the Smithsonian Folklife Festival. Margarita had brought together, um, this was in 1989, in the summer of 1989. So, um, she brought together, uh, performers, ensembles from several of the then Soviet republics, mm -hmm. Ukraine, uh, Southern Russia. There's, so there was a Southern Russian ensemble from, um, was it Patsarednia, which is very close to the Ukrainian border. And it was, uh, and so they, their performance, and they chose me to be the bridegroom for a depiction of the Russian uh, wedding ritual. Uh -huh. The two week, one or two week uh, series of events from betrothal to to the wedding. Well, they enacted the wedding ritual as part of the folk life festival? Yes. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, wow. Yes. So we had a Russian, and you know, the moment that really springs to mind in this regard is that, so here I am at the head of the table with the bride at the feast and the, and the singers are surrounding us and, and, and they are the guests and they're around us singing and that physical space vibrated with music. 
in a way that we came close to capturing. Remember when Dr. Mazza would have us hit the overtones? Mm, this, absolutely. That was it. Nyantara, this like blew my mind. Like, okay. you, when you hit an overtone, when two people sing together in an overtone, the, by the, like the waves, the sound waves hit each other and you will hear, it creates a buzzing sound. So imagine what? now that you're in a room of people and they're all doing that. And so there's the singing mm. and then there's a lot of overtones in Russian music. And then there's also this vibration happening. Like that. Yeah, that, yeah. that was something. Yeah. And being inside that sound, you're right, is... So, you know, here's an example then, getting back to your question knowledge production and, and you know, knowledge creation, that's, you don't learn that out in, in that way yeah. outside of performing. So there is a very special kind of learning, a special kind of research, if you will, that happens by the experience of performance. So we're running out of time. <laughs> Um, this is all very exciting and I feel like we could just talk for another six hours. Oh yeah. Like I <laughs> joked with you today, we could talk all day, but I have to be somewhere in about a couple hours. So. <laughs> I'm like, my mind's like all afire here. Um, I guess, I guess maybe, um, I'll ask you before we close, if there was anything you wanted to bring up that we didn't touch on. We've captured Pretty much all of it. I, I we've, we've just started, you know, with this last question to kind of get at some of the questions that fascinate me about the, this, the work that you guys are doing. And that, you know, the, the, the academic community of the 21st century is, is something I've thought a lot about. Um, and what's, what's not working, what could work, and where people like us fit in. Uh, and I, I don't have answers to those questions. I'm seeking them. And I think this is a wonderful forum where we can explore those possibilities together. Uh, one thing that I struggled with with Rusalka was how to sustain that group in... And I, we, we, we were together for something like 25 years. So we did a pretty good job of that. But I remember there was a very strong tension at one point as I started to think, if this is going to really sustain itself, at some point we need to get serious about performing publicly and, um, and marketing ourselves as a performing ensemble mm. and getting gigs, paying gigs on a regular basis and... And maybe eventually carving out a place in the community where we could sustain ourselves financially, you know. I thought that was a possibility. I still do. But it really ran against the volunteerism of the group. And, and there was a couple of people that really pushed back hard and saying, no, I'm, 
I don't, I, I want, I want the ensemble the way it is. I want the flexibility, the, um, I don't want the, that level of commitment mm. you know, to that, to what you're asking us. And if you go in that direction, you're going to lose me and, and a few others. And honestly, I, and that was, again, talk about space for dissent. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I learned from that and said, okay, so that's not going to work. But I think that's a, 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 a part of where I think maybe you guys are right now, um, of where maybe not quite that kind of tension, but how do you sustain this? How do you monetize it in some real sense? Um, and where is the audience that really is seeking, you know, this, this kind of discussion? Uh, this kind of learning, because I'm not sure we're there yet, where there's a place that can where you can easily find to have a community that is serious about finding creative ways for knowledge production and sharing. Mm. Uh, I think the media are finally starting to get around questions like this. I mean, look at journalists and what they've had to go through. Right. Um, right. I think we're going through it too. And as, as academia has made its choices over the last 20 or 30 years, I think it has, I think the place for people seeking knowledge for its own sake with, with less regard to um, a professional career path in academia you know, that doesn't in America at least that's been kind of a necessity if you're going to get a PhD then where's the teaching job that goes with it I'm not sure that that is what is going to I don't know if that's the best path for the future yeah do you have a Comments on that line, Tara? Yeah, okay, so I will say this. This is why I think Maureen kind of asked me. I was just at the American Anthropological Association annual conference last month. And what I saw was this like very deep divide between older tenured academics and even people who had left the Institute, but like who were older, who had been able to utilize academia as like a really great springboard. You know what I mean? Like maybe they taught for a few years and then went and worked for Microsoft or something like that. And there was a huge difference between them and these kind of um, early career academics, PhD students, early career adjuncts, etc., in how they understood academia and their place in it and one person who had been doing work for the american anthropological association one of their offshoots the cultural anthropology society or something like that so like mm -hmm. is very involved he said something that really stuck with me which is and he's a phd student so like you know we all know what that means in terms of your like time and energy right. and financial cost and mental, you know, whatever, <laughs> um, mental health costs and all of that. 
he said, you know, we're all, there aren't enough teaching jobs. We're all basically like anthropology hobbyists because we're going to do these PhDs and then we have to figure out what comes next. And it is, you're right. The, the academy, like institutions don't want to think about this or talk about it. But like, there is a huge group of people who are thinking about it and sort of for, well, we, you know, Maureen and I met in a UK PhD um, but in our cohort of about 15, 15 to 18, maybe one or two, I think, are still in academia. Everyone else has left. Right? So, like, mm-hmm. if you extrapolate out those numbers, <laughs> if yes. you have one or two people in every PhD year who are staying in academia, but the rest of them are leaving. That's a huge number of people who are grappling with what it means to go through what we all go through as graduate students and PhD candidates, and then start in a start elsewhere. And some of those places understand what it means to have a PhD, but like, especially when you're, talking about in the humanities we have to really make a case for ourselves right my brother has a phd in physics or some sort of physics please don't ask me any further questions i do not know um but he doesn't have to justify himself in a job thank you yeah so yeah that's my soapbox sorry That's why I'm here. That's why, like, you know, I I was like, guys, we need to start a podcast. <laughs> yeah, because the answer isn't more research institute. Right. There, there has to be a different understanding of professionalism and professional training. You know, in academia, when I was an academic advisor in the 90s and early and through the 2000s, I saw academia, in my mind, selling itself. And, and, and making choices that bought into this idea of a one-to-one match between a degree and a job. Yes. And if you, if you follow that path, then you can create higher and higher levels of degrees that match with this job and force people through those degree programs. And I was seeing this in physical therapy and different professions where social work. And you're all. And nonprofit yeah. management has its own MBA, which is insane. Right. So academia chose this path and has reinforced that thinking that I've been pushing against my whole life. Since I would teach the, a, the one class that academic advisors at Ohio State would teach is an introduction to uh, OSU. University survey. And I taught it to liberal arts majors or people who are exploring liberal arts. And the question that those entering freshmen are always asked is, what can I do with this major? And my answer would always be to push back against that question. It, it, it do, you know, um, or was it the uh, enterprise car rental place? I remember at least for a while, but I'm not sure it is true today, 
but they were seeking out liberal arts grads for their for their sales force. When I was graduating college, and this was in 2007, when I was graduating from undergrad, Enterprise Rent-A-Car was the biggest employer of new undergrads. Hmm, so like, kid. that was their, that was their so, thing. They're looking for people who are working. Somebody, yeah, somebody at Enterprise got it. And that kind of thinking just hasn't pervaded, you know, uh, to the point where it's understood that an anthropology PhD can do all kinds of things and do them well and has a unique skill set that can benefit in a variety of settings. And it shouldn't be totally up to us to demonstrate that or prove that. It should be a conversation we have. We're looking for this. What can you offer? Boom. You know, and to have that give and take and to have that openness in the application and interview process that is completely lacking right now. Yes, this is exactly what I was discussing with my job coach the other day. Because yeah. I was just, I'm just so frustrated. And right. I was telling her and she's like, well, I don't think people in HR departments are that dense. And I was like. Oh, you have no idea. And it's not. <laughs> It's not that that density is 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 reserved for HR. It's that they are the ones charged with a task that's given to them by people who are equally dense about what it is they're looking for. And here I am as moderator getting back to my church. We have been struggling, as all churches are right now, in finding directors of Christian education or faith formation, however you want to phrase it. And our biggest challenge is who are we looking for? What are we looking for? We have a candidate who has all of the resume boxes checked, but there's zero personal fit with our faith journey, with our staff. So what good is a resume and, 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 and how, what, how can we frame an interview to really suss out those more important soft skills mm. and connections. That, that's, that's a challenge right there. Uh, and I don't know that, again, I'm not one with any you know, specific answers, but I'm seeing a problem from the other side now as the one doing the hiring. It's like, boy, we're just not finding, there's people out there who can do this job. We're not finding them. Huh. You know, so, and some of them might be, who knows, an anthropology PhD or you know, whatever. Next, when this podcast comes out, I get a bunch of calls to this church. <laughs> well, there was a... So, oh, go ahead. No. It's just... uh, I was just going to say, there is a there is a recent, quite large Harvard study that came out this year, earlier this year, about hidden talent and hidden workers. And it was all yeah. about how kind of modern HR overlooks a lot of people who would actually be really, really good in the workforce. Um, like people who have taken time off for parenting or caretaking duties, um, maybe people who don't have undergraduate degrees, et cetera. 
and showed that in actuality with a lot of soft skills the those workers were had better outcomes and overall had better outcomes than the workers that were hired kind of through traditional approaches to hr right where you tick mm-hmm. all of the boxes of these are the things you need to do but it's maybe not a personality fit or they don't have kind of more rounded experience to bring to problem solving right and the whole research was Mm -hmm. about how these people who are traditionally overlooked actually make are better in like any position that you want they want to take on right (laughs) and i think it's true you know they focus on people who are maybe quote-unquote undereducated or don't have like a bachelor's degree but i think that's also very true on the other end and sort of in um you know when you're looking at kind of the humanities liberal arts artists um people think like well if you went into art you actually don't have like the skills needed to you know work in an office or or do something like that but that's not true because artists also have a certain level of thought about the realities of an economic system that they need to work in, you know? (laughs) Like, if you've been an artist for 20 years, you know, you know how, how to sell things. (laughs) I don't understand why that's not Mm -hmm. part of um, how people approach workers. The really dangerous part of this conversation is, is when we start to challenge how the whole structure of education. You know, when we're really getting down to it, we're nurturing human beings. We're nurturing and developing minds and intellects and social skills. Um, And when you start down that road, then you start to run up against why are we making a four-year undergraduate degree a necessary and exclusive path towards a professional job. And maybe something comes first. Maybe, maybe that's part of the path, but maybe it doesn't have to come right after high school. Maybe it ties in with some internship or semi-professional experience or whatever, Peace Corps or, or what have you, as, as a more creative and flexible framework for how do we develop this person into a fully functioning, thriving adult? You know, I just had this conversation with Nick Jones, who's, he's the head of um, Nationwide Children's Hospital's um, community outreach program. And he was saying this exact same thing because I had, it was an informational interview and I had been looking at his resume and I was like, you've got a really interesting resume. Like you've got, you were like working simultaneously as going to s- school and you got a random law degree. And, and then he was explaining that um, he really totally agrees with what you said that, um, you know, people who only go to school understands problems, the problems that they're going to need to deal with in the workforce completely differently than people who pair that education with experience. And the reason why he'd gotten the law degree was because 
he needed to have the background on policy. Mm-hmm. And but it wasn't it wasn't because he wanted to be a lawyer. It wasn't right. for the career path. It right. was literally for the knowledge. And there, yeah. so law schools have managed this. What we're talking about that people with law degrees do all kinds of things, and law schools have done an excellent job in saying, "Oh, here's all kinds of things you can do. Come here, we'll teach you," and and they know exactly what they are offering you. It is a very specific kind of thinking about legal contracts and and the world is filled with contracts um, about um, language and the precision of language all that stuff comes with a law school education and is applicable in all sorts of different ways well yeah and a conversation with the drone i mean nationwide community outreach is doing phenomenal things in columbus and so, and as there's a good example of the kind of person it takes to make that happen is someone who see, is thinking outside that box and thinking about what the world really needs as opposed to how do we work within the structures that someone else has yeah, given us. Yeah, Yeah. We are very much out of time, guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Greg, as we, as we always conclude, do you have any words for our listeners? Any final thoughts? Wow. That, so I think I would leave this conversation with um, some thoughts about, as we've been talking about, the, the, the really fascinating part of this conversation with me is just what we've been talking about. Um, knowledge production and and thriving as adults you know and I, the, the thing that has gotten me started on a new um, way of looking at my life is is not I guess my final thoughts would be that seeking a way to thrive and finding the words to describe that thriving and having a sense of what that looks like is really what what all of us, if we're lucky enough, we get to experience at some point. And I think that's ultimately the goal that we all should have for ourselves and for each other. And that's, I feel fortunate at this point that I'm finally at a point where I can I have the privilege, I have the financial security to start exploring that in creative ways. And I guess that's what I would wish for everyone is to have that opportunity to just say, how can I build a life of meaning for myself that is in service to those I care about? Thank you for that. Thank you. It was so wonderful meeting you, Greg. I'm so sorry that like we oh. had so many technical issues. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm, yeah, I, I was a little sorry for that too, but, but you guys handle it well and, and we, we got on track. So that's the important thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. And it was such an interesting conversation. Um, I have a lot of questions, so you're going to have to come back for an episode two. <laughs> well, I and I, I have to share. I, I didn't get a chance to tell you, but I have, you know, since 
Maureen's conversation with me, what, about at least two months ago. Yeah. Um, she shared with me the link, and I did catch all the other episodes. I'm just absolutely fascinated and delighted by the work you guys are doing. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. So that is wonderful if there's, to hear. It, it would be an honor to be a uh, member of Sora. Oh, yeah. We forgot to invite you to join Sora. I keep forgetting to invite people. Yeah, you are a member of Sora. Yeah, I just kind of, I think I assume you're just sort of a member of Sora now. You've been on the podcast, you're ours. <laughs> I, I was kind of getting that. It's okay, if I'm on the podcast, I must be a member of Sora. <laughs> and that is an honor. Thanks for listening to this episode with Greg. We hope you enjoyed it because we definitely have a lot of fun putting these together. We also recently got some very helpful feedback from you. And we're always happy to get your comments, ideas, questions, suggestions, or hear if you'd like to be on the podcast or know someone who'd like to be on the podcast. So find us at sorapod.com and get in touch with us at hello at sorapod.com. That's H-E-L-L-O at sorapod.com. You can hear us wherever you like listening to podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this show or others, please do rate and review us. It helps boost us on the algorithm. Sorapod is Nainthara Premakumar, Maureen Pritchard, and me, Sahil Warsi. Our theme music is Philostroki by Nick Proteus, and Sorapod is produced by Chainlink Studios.